I've got some great news. It's now possible to get your premium subscription via PayPal or your credit card. The premium subscription allows you to access all episodes of Brain Science, including about six years of content recorded before 2013 and all episode transcripts. A great way to access premium and free content is through the free Brain Science mobile app, which is available for iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. You'll find it in your favorite app store. To learn more about premium, go to brainsciencepodcast.com. Welcome to Brain Science, the show that explores how recent discoveries in neuroscience are helping unravel the mystery of how our brains make us human. I am your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell, and this is episode 135. Today's episode is an interview with Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, author of How Emotions Are Made, The New Science of the Mind and Brain. In a way, this is a return to the show's roots, since I first talked about emotions way back in episode 11, which first aired in early 2007. But this episode also represents a special challenge for me because as I read how emotions are made, I realized that I needed to update my knowledge in this area and let go of several ideas that have had a strong intuitive appeal, which is to say it's time to give up some ideas that feel right, but that don't stand up to the current evidence. For the sake of new listeners, I'm going to play the interview first, and then I will follow up with my usual habit of summarizing the key ideas. Then I'll get into the details of how Dr. Barrett's work relates to previous episodes and its implications for our overall understanding of how our brains make us human. As always, you can find complete show notes and episode transcripts at brainsciencepodcast.com, and you can send me email at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. My guest today is Lisa Feldman Barrett, author of How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. Lisa, it's great to have you on Brain Science today. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So I always like to ask my guests to to talk a little bit about themselves before we start. I I really like for my listeners to get a feel for scientists as people. Uh, So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and especially how it was that you ended up going into neuroscience? Sure. Well, I'm a professor of psychology. Originally, I was trained as a clinical psychologist and Because I was investigating the nature of emotion, I retrained as uh, a psychophysiologist and then as a cognitive scientist and then as a neuroscientist. So my my entire career really has been uh, this journey of um, constant retraining and acquiring additional skills so that I can pursue uh, the work that I do, you know, more effectively. Uh, I have a big lab, about 20 full-time scientists in my lab. And then I train about anywhere from between 30 and 70 undergraduate research trainees every semester. So it's a big, for a psychology slash neuroscience lab, it's a reasonably sized shop. And uh, it, 
More personally, I, I have one child. She's 18 years old, and uh, my husband's a computer scientist. I got interested in emotion in a really kind of um, a roundabout way. I think like most people, I didn't really have a direct career path, the kinds of things I thought that I'd be doing when I, when I was 18 years old and I imagined what my life would be like, I didn't think that I'd be, <laughs> you know, a neuroscientist directing a lab. Um, when I went to graduate school, I was not studying emotion. In fact, my real concern that I was interested to study was the nature of self-regard or self-esteem. Why is it that some people, you know, feel happy with who they are and other people are less so? And in the course of doing the research that I was assigned to do at the outset of my PhD training, I attempted to replicate some existing findings in the literature. I tried eight experiments that I tried to replicate and wasn't able to do so. And, you know, my first reaction was, okay, so I'm probably not cut out to be a scientist, obviously. Um, but then, you know, when I calmed down and I kind of looked at my findings, I realized, well, the one thing that was replicating over and over and over again was the fact that the emotion measures were not performing the way that they that, that they should have, you know, that they seem to be problematic. And so I just assumed I was using the wrong measures and that what I really had to do was find objective measures of anger, sadness, fear, disgust, and so on. And that it would be super easy to do this because, you know, everybody knows that there are you know, each of these emotions has a universal facial expression that everyone around the world can make and recognize. And but then soon I found, well, that's actually not not true. Um, when you look at the scientific evidence, there's really no evidence that scowls are universally made in anger and that pouts are universally made in sadness and that even smiles are universally made in happiness. And they're certainly not universal recognized around the world. So I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe Darwin was just wrong about that one thing. So, but everybody knows, you know, that each emotion has its own pattern of physical response. William James said so. But then when I scratched the surface of that black hole, I realized very quickly, well, actually, William James didn't say that, William James being the one of the fathers of American psychology. In fact, he said the opposite. And in fact, the evidence doesn't really bear out the idea that we that each emotion has a single physical fingerprint in the body. And so basically, for me, it's just been this long odyssey of trying to understand the biological basis of emotion. And eventually this took me to brought me to neuroscience and uh, having to understand the brain. So I studied anatomy for a number of years and brain imaging. And I've done some work now with non-human animal models and so on. So, you know, when I started this in graduate school, I thought, oh, I'll just take a, a vacation from my dissertation work for three months, solve this problem, find an objective measure of motion, and then I'll be back on my way. And, uh, you know, here I am uh, almost 25 years later. Right. Because you're, as I recall from your book, your idea was that if you could have a good objective measurement, then you could teach patients to be, you might say, more emotionally intelligent, and that might help them to be happier if they could recognize their own emotions. But if it turns out there's no such thing as in a, as you call the fingerprint, then that whole that whole plan kind of goes out the window. <laughs> yes, it does. And instead, 
what you're left with is a, a an incredibly interesting puzzle that if there's no single facial expression that people make when they're angry or sad or afraid and so on, if there's no single autonomic nervous system fingerprint so it's not the case that when you're angry your heart is doing one always doing the same thing your breathing rate always changes in the same way and so on and so forth if it's the case that the pattern of brain activity in different instances of anger let's say looks different then how is it that all these different varieties of experience of anger we know as anger and how is it that we're able to look at each other's faces and bodies and listen to each other's voices. And in the blink of an eye, it feels to us as if we're reading people's emotions the way we read, the way we read words on a page. So this is a really interesting puzzle. And, you know, sometimes in sciences, you know, when you fail to replicate something or you fail to support a hypothesis, what is um, laid before you is the opportunity for great scientific discovery. I'm looking forward to talking about the new theory that that you have uh, and I guess your coworkers have come up with. But we need to back up to the basics and just ask, you know, what is the what you call in your book the classical theory of emotion? Well, the classical view of emotion I think will be familiar to many of your listeners. It's the idea that in the brains of all of us We have buried deep in the animalistic parts of our highly evolved brains, we have emotion circuits, one for anger, one for fear, one for sadness, one for disgust, one for happiness, and so on and so forth. And that something in the world will trigger one of these circuits. And as a consequence, there will be this obligatory change in your body's physiology, in your neurochemistry. You'll make a a facial expression that's very diagnostic. So if it's fear, for example, you know, you'll widen your eyes and your eyebrows will raise and, you know, you might even open your mouth. Um, There'll be uh, a characteristic feeling uh, that you'll feel terror or dread. Uh, And then you will react with a characteristic behavioral response. So you'll your body will prepare to run or to freeze and so on. And the assumption is that the same circuit that occurs in all human brains, that is kind of this, the circuits are kind of built in from birth. And in fact, we don't just share them amongst ourselves. And as humans, we may also share them with other animals. And that everyone around the world, if they have a normally working brain, will have these reactions and they'll be able to recognize the expressions of emotion that result. That pretty much sums up what I would say, you know, a caricature or a summary of the the classical view. And I call it a caricature because it hits all the highlights, really, of the classical view. But of course, you know, there are many different scientists who have their own kind of flavor of that view. So they might, you know, tinker with this or that you know, element. But generally, that's the general idea that you have a neural essence for each emotion that is baked into your brain from birth, that is homologous with other animals, and that you also have a physical fingerprint. Every time you have uh, an emotion, you will have a tendency towards a specific action, a specific body state and a specific facial expression. 
in the book, you go through first the facial expressions, how, how they actually fail to be universal, and of course, the body signals. And then you went to the brain. I guess that's when you started looking at brain imaging. And what did you discover there? Yeah, well, here's what happened. You know, scientists are usually very, very good at paying attention to the data, you know. And so when people started to realize that, in fact, facial movements were quite variable in emotion. So, you know, people smile when they're sad and they can cry when they're angry and they can gasp and scream when they're happy. When people realized that there was this variability, they said, oh, the consistency for each emotion is in the body, right? And then when they realized, well, that's actually not true because, you know, a person can tremble in fear, jump in fear, freeze in fear, hide in fear, attack in fear, even laugh in the face of fear. People said, okay, well, actually what's really consistent is the brain, right? There's these, there are these circuits in the brain. So, you know, I had to make a decision about after studying the anatomy of the brain, I, I had to make a decision about what kind of neuroscience I wanted to study. And I had a choice. You know, I could study people with uh, brain lesions. Um, so this is one way to, to study the nature of emotion. It's to look at people who have brain damage and then examine what they can and can't do with respect to emotion. So I read a lot of that literature. I read a lot of the literature on animal Uh, the use of uh, non-human animal models and the study of emotion. Um, But eventually I settled on brain imaging. And uh, I did this because brain imaging allows you, um, first of all, to study a real variety of different emotional events uh, that you don't have the, it's not so easy to do in non-human animals. And I was really interested in the variety of experience because where each emotion is concerned, you know, variety is the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was very interested to, to focus on that. I, the other thing that I was really interested to do was to try to understand something about the relationship between the physical state of the brain, its ability to control the body and the subjective experiences that resulted from that interplay. And it seemed to me that there were many assumptions that had to be made in order to do that in non-human animals. And I was, but, you know, um, it's a much easier question, actually, if you're interested in the nature of um, consciousness and, and the nature of the brain's ability to construct perceptions and, um, thoughts and memories and other experiences to study humans. So mm-hmm. uh, you can ask them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can ask them. And so um, that's always been a personal uh, interest of mine, the nature of experience and its relation to the state of the body and into action. And so, you know, I've always been really interested, you know, I read very broadly And so I'm familiar with a lot of uh, domains in neuroscience, a lot of research domains in neuroscience. But my own research uh, in my own lab focuses largely on a variety of brain imaging techniques. So we definitely use uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI. But we also use PET because we examine, you know, for example, neurotransmitter receptor function. So we're really interested to try to understand. If you think about the brain as, you know, billions of neurons that are networked together and they're bathed in a chemical system of chemicals we call neurotransmitters, 
And these chemicals make it harder or easier for neurons to pass information back and forth to one another. Then you don't just want to study neural activity. You also want to try to study something about the neurochemistry, which you do with PET imaging. Uh, and we are at the forefront to some extent, our lab, at using novel imaging techniques. So for example, in most imaging labs, people use a, a pretty powerful magnet to look into the brain and see you know, how the brain is um, functioning. The magnets are a strength of three Tesla. So Tesla is the unit of strength for a magnet. We also do seven Tesla scanning, though, on humans. So we're able to not just look at the cortex, but actually peer into subcortical regions of the brain where there are these tiny clumps of neurons called nuclei. And we can isolate those nuclei and look at their function during emotion, but also during you know, memory and when people are thinking and uh, when they're perceiving, that is when they're seeing or hearing and so mm -hmm. on, and examine the function there as well. In terms of leading us to the theory of constructed emotion, what was the main thing that you learned in terms of the imaging that related to this whole issue of looking for emotion fingerprints? So originally, scientists thought that perhaps there was a single region of the brain that was most important for particular emotions. So they would try to localize the circuitry for fear, for example, in a brain region called the amygdala, or uh, the circuitry for disgust in a brain region called the, in the insula. And so one of the first things we learned is that, that emotions can't be localized to particular brain regions. Um, so we have done a number of our own experiments in this regard, but we've also done what are called meta-analyses, which is uh, summaries of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studies, brain imaging studies, where we combine them statistically. And, and this gives us a lot of power to search for the evidence to test these hypotheses, these ideas. So when it became clear that emotions couldn't be localized to particular brain regions, then we tested the hypothesis. Many people had the hypothesis, well, maybe an emotion can be localized to a network. So, you know, there'd be one network for anger and one network for sadness and so on. And again, you know, we did a number of studies and, and we also um, did meta-analyses and showed pretty convincingly that there are no individual networks for emotion either. Something now that people researchers do is they'll look for a pattern of activity that's distributed across the whole brain to try and find the pattern that summarizes what, you know, an emotion like anger, say, looks like in the brain. And what's really interesting is what we see in these studies is what we see elsewhere as well, which is that you can find a pattern across the brain, the entire brain, which in a given study distinguishes anger from sadness from fear. But when you look at another study, which also uses a whole brain pattern, it can find patterns to distinguish anger and sadness and fear. The patterns aren't the same. Mm. So there's a lot of, again, variability is the norm. And the other thing which is interesting about these patterns is that they are, they're kind of like abstract summaries, meaning that the pattern that you see, let's say a pattern for anger in, in a specific study that pattern actually doesn't have to occur. That exact pattern doesn't have to occur in anybody's brain <laughs> when they're angry in order for that pattern to work well. 
so this is a based on the mathematics of pattern classification, as it's called. And so the analogy I would use here is this, that if you wanted to know how many people are in the average American family, you could look up a statistic and you'd find out that there are 3.13 people in the average uh, middle class American family. But as far as I know, no, not every family has 3.13 people in it. And in fact, no family has 3.13 people in it because that's an abstract summary, whereas the actual individual families vary quite a bit. And so we did a, a mathematical simulation where we showed that you can take a brain and you can divide it up into little cubes which are called voxels, you know, because a brain is a three-dimensional structure. So it's sort of a voxel is like a pixel, like a pixel on television, except, you know, that makes up a television screen or a computer screen, except it's in three dimensions, not mm -hmm. two. So if you divide the brain up into all these little cubes, you get basically something like, you know, 180,000 cubes. And you can look at the pattern of activity across these cubes. And you can ask, well, in the case where we've we're able to take this pattern, let's say it's a pattern for anger that we've derived in this experiment. Can we test and see whether every subject or even any subject, test subject who's feeling angry actually has, shows an increase in neural activity in the voxels that are contained in the pattern? And what we found in our simulation was that we could identify anger. So we could look at somebody's activity pattern in their brain and we could with almost 100% accuracy, use our pattern classifier, our pattern, to diagnose whether or not somebody was feeling angry in that moment, yet not a single voxel was shared in common between that person's pattern of activity in their brain and the pattern itself. <laughs> so yeah, basically, the way that, that these things work is the mathematics is basically asking when you look at someone's pattern of brain activity, you're asking which pattern is it, is it closest to? Is it closer to the, the anger pattern in that study or the sadness pattern in that study? And so it's just, it's just like a, more like a similarity judgment. And the really cool thing here is that this way of understanding these patterns is very much in line with how Darwin understood a species. So before... Darwin came along, natural historians, which is what biologists used to be called, mm -hmm. um, really, they understood a, a species of animal to be kind of a classical category where, let's say, a cocker spaniel, there was a perfect ideal cocker spaniel with the perfect ear length and the perfect tail length and the perfect nose length and the perfect thickness of coat and color and so on. And everything around that was thought to be error, you know, mistakes. So all the variable, all the variability in the individual cocker spaniels that you could see were thought to be error because there was one platonic perfect form of a of a cocker spaniel, you know, that that God made. I mean, that was the original, the original idea. And Darwin, so it's like the way I I think of it is like the dog show version of a species, right? So there's like a perfect <laughs> a perfect dog. And Darwin came along and said, wait a minute, you know, this variation that we see in nose length and ear length and tail length and so on is really meaningful. And it's meaningful in relation to the environment. That is, without this variability, the environment can't select 
which individuals are going to live and which individuals are going to to not not survive. And without this variability, the species itself would die off very quickly. So variation is really important to the survival of the species because you want a species, a group of animals that's really robust to changes in the environment. And that's what variability buys you. And so, you know, Darwin's at the core of, of all of Darwin's insights, the most important insight that he that he shared in On the Origin of Species, his most famous book, is the idea that a biological category like a, like a species is actually a highly variable category. In fact, you'd call it a conceptual category in the sense that the, the category, the instances, the individuals in the category are highly variable. No, no individual looks exactly the same as any other, but yet you have the ideal form, which is just kind of like the symbol or the stereotype of the category. And it doesn't even have to exist in nature. It's just a good symbol, symbolic representation of the category. And so to some extent, that's the way we understand emotions, exactly the way that Darwin understood uh, a species, that each emotion category, anger, sadness, fear, and so on, is a highly variable set of instances that are tied specifically to the situation that you're in. Your brain is able to not make one anger, but a whole variety of angers, each one tailored to the situation that you're in. And so from a brain imaging standpoint, what this shows, how this, what this looks like is that um, you see a lot of variability, but you also within a, an individual experiment, you can find a summary pattern that you know summarizes all this variability even if nobody actually in their brain nobody has a pattern which is identical to this summary the summary still works pretty well within a given experiment unfortunately you know the pattern doesn't generalize across experiments um, because of all this variability this variability, would you say ties to this other idea that you talk a lot about in your book on uh, degeneracy Yes. So one of the things I learned, you know, as I said, I, I read pretty widely. And one of the things I learned is that biologists have this fantastic idea that they've, it's not just an idea, it's actually a real phenomenon that they've discovered. Unfortunately, they gave it a really horrible name. <laughs> you know, the degeneracy is the name of the phenomenon. And degeneracy means basically there's more than one way to skin a cat. Mm -hmm. You know, that the idea is that there's more than one set of mechanisms that can produce this exact same outcome. So it's not redundancy. It's actually, you know, think of it, for example, on a map as multiple paths that you can take to get to, you know, from point A to point B. There are lots of different ways to get uh, from point A to point B. So if you were taking the same street, but you could walk on the street, you could ride your bike on the street, you could um, drive on the street, that would be redundancy. But degeneracy is the ability to take multiple different paths between A and B. And what biologists have discovered is that every biological system that's ever been studied actually shows degeneracy. Um, so for example, uh, researchers often will use mice that have been where they have a gene knocked out where you know a gene is missing it's been edited out of the genome of that animal so you can have a whole um, breed of of mice that 
um, is missing a particular gene, and then you can study that. That's partly how researchers study what that gene does. Well, it turns out that when you these are called knockout mice, with the idea that one gene has been turned off or it's been removed from the genome of the animal. And it turns out though that like 30% of the animals who have a missing gene have the characteristic that the gene contributes to anyways. Right. Um, clearly this means that there are multiple combinations of different genes which produce the same characteristic. Um, that's just one example. The scientist Gerald Edelman won a Nobel Prize for showing degeneracy in the immune system. So your immune system works the way that it does because you have degeneracy in the sense that a single antibody can act on lots of different antigens or, or said a different way. One chemical in your immune system, a single chemical can fight off lots of different bugs. And so that's another example of degeneracy. Right. And in the case of our nervous system, degeneracy means that more than one neuron or sets of neurons could lead to the same emotion. Exactly. So that's why we can't find that that good old fingerprint that we were looking for. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. So you got to the point in your career where you realized that the search for the emotion fingerprints was was probably a dead end, but fortunately you saw it as opportunity rather than failure. I'm sure you went through the emotion of seeing it as failure at some point. Uh, so can you tell me a little bit about how um, the theory of constructed emotion, um, how, how you came up with that? I love the fact that it really fits into, you know, how we do, how we, what we know about how the brain constructs other things like um, visual perception. That's one of the things that makes it, I think, a very strong theory. But I'm curious about how, how that happened. Well, you know, the first thing I'll say is that when I use the term theory, I'm using the term in a really specific scientific way. I'm not using the word in a colloquial way. So in in everyday life, a theory is just, you know, your idea of right. how something works. But in science, we've co-opted that word to mean an idea that has just a ton of evidence scientific evidence to back it up. And so, you know, I just, my, my, my major operating principle here is um, be really curious, you know, after you get over that, that initial feeling of failure, you know, be just try to be really curious about the puzzles that you're facing and go try to go and read in literatures that might be instructive for you. So for example, when I realized that emotion, the instances of, emo of any emotion, say sadness, are highly variable, but yet people, even though they're, the feeling might be different and what your body's doing might be different in each case and what your face is doing might be different, still you're able to experience this ensemble as sadness you're able to look at somebody else and even though sometimes they might be laughing, sometimes crying, sometimes in a stony silence that you, you will understand in the right context, all of those as sadness, experience that person as sad during all of these expressions, how could that be possible? And so I turned to the cognitive science literature, for example, on um, concepts and categories. And I learned there's a whole history 
of the study of concepts and categories. So a category, you know, is a group of things that are not necessarily that look the same or that sound the same, but are the sim- are similar for some purpose or some function. So we're used to thinking of categories as things that always are exactly identical. They're similar to each other in their physical properties. But actually, a category is a set of things which are similar to one another in their functional properties. So for example, you can have a category of uh, things that protect you from the rain, for example. Mm-hmm. And lots of things can protect you from the rain that don't look the same, don't sound the same, don't feel the same, don't have the same structure. And it turns out that we don't have categories stored in our brains. When someone asks us about a category, we we kind of conjure up an instance of that category. So even if I said to you, uh, if I said to you, so this is a, these are true experiments, actually, you say to subjects, test subjects, uh, tell me all the properties of a fish. If you do this, and you're asking people, and they are in a laboratory with very little context, or, you know, you provide people with a context like, you know, they're in a, in a pet store, for example, people will say a goldfish. If they're by a river, they'll say a trout. If they're, um, you know, at a restaurant, they'll say a salmon. Mm-hmm. Um, and what became clear is that the best example of the, the category and the properties that that instance has really depends on the context uh, that the person is in. This is research that was done by the cognitive scientist Larry Barcelo in 1983 for his doctoral dissertation. And so it's been known for a long time that people used to think about categories as collections of instances that had necessary and sufficient features, which just means that they all have the same fingerprint. <laughs> and it was scientists over a number of years went, went through this discovery process and they realized that in fact, um, when you are representing or thinking about a category, really what you're doing is your brain is conjuring on the fly the best instance of that category for whatever you need to use it for, right? So if you're hungry, you're going to think about uh, a salmon. And if you're looking for a pet, uh, you're going to be, um, you know, thinking about a goldfish. And mm-hmm. if you're a fly fisherman, then, you know, you'll think about, I guess, a trout or whatever fish. But you get my point. You know, when you ask people, for example, the um, prototypical or best example of a bird People in the United States will say a robin or a sparrow, unless it's Thanksgiving, (laughs) in which case they'll say a turkey. And if you were in South America, they would say a peacock because peacocks are very common and and kind of beloved. Um, So the point here is that um, your brain is what it's doing on the fly. It's kind of constantly generating instances of categories and a concept is just a set of representations in your brain for categories. So this was very instructive to me. It allowed me to understand that one of the things that the human brain must be doing is it must be categorizing. It must be looking at all these variable instances that become sadness and saying, ah, well, these are all similar for some purpose, right? They don't have to look the same or feel the same or sound the same, but they have to have some similar function or purpose. So that was the first clue, I think. And I, in in 2006, started to write about 
the idea that uh, the brain is using concepts to create emotion categories and that this had something to do with how the brain was constructing emotion. So that was one piece of the puzzle. Okay. Another piece of the puzzle came when I realized that the brain doesn't really have uh, you can't really carve the brain up into mental organs. You can't really look at the brain and say, well, this part of the brain is for thinking and that part of the brain is for emotion and this other part of the brain is for memory and so on and so forth. Researchers tried to do that for a long time, but it's become very, very clear that the billions of neurons that are networked together that to make up your brain can be understood as a set of, of networks, smaller networks. And these networks are not independent of one another, first of all. So it's not like the networks in your that make up your big brain are um, like Lego blocks, which fit together, that, that they're independent of one another. They mm. actually share neurons with one another. So a better example would be like Pittsburgh Airport, for example, has a lot of different terminals, but all the terminals share a common hub. And it turns out in your brain, your brain has a bunch of networks, but they overlap. They share these hubs, basically. Mm -hmm. There are these very connected regions of the brain. And each network performs more than one function. So you can think about these networks a little bit like ingredients in your kitchen. So just in the same way that, you know, if you look in most American kitchens, you'll find flour and water and salt. And you can make a lot of different recipes with flour and water and salt. Um, and you can even make some recipes that are not even food-like recipes. Um, like you can make glue out of flour <laughs> and, and, and water and salt. And so the same networks that are involved in making emotion also make thoughts and memories and perceptions. Even when you look at the visual system, for example, and you look at the primary visual cortex, which is like the earliest part of the visual system, when information from your retina makes it, so the retina in your eye makes it all the way to your brain, and it goes through a series of subcortical regions up to the cerebral cortex, the first place that it arrives is this place called primary visual cortex. But those neurons don't just code information about vision. They also code information about hearing and about touch and so on. So even the sensory regions of our brains are not, they don't just have one function, you know, they have multiple functions. So that was another clue because I thought, well, it's really interesting because when you look at the patterns of activity that are very associated with, with emotion, these patterns, what you see is that all the networks of the brain are engaged, but the ones that seem really most robustly engaged are also really important for making concepts and uh, for controlling your body. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, these are the exact same networks, right? We're not talking about different parts of the net. We're talking about the exact same networks. So that was also, uh, I think, one piece of the puzzle. And the final piece of the puzzle for me came when I realized that after reading a lot of anatomy, uh, and then I started to work with some engineers who got me really interested in the physiology and physics of electrical uh, signal processing because the way that neurons communicate with one another is partially electrical. Mm -hmm. And so 
when I started to read this literature, I realized a couple of really important things. One is that all systems in your body, including in your brain, have to be metabolically efficient. This is something that's really, really important to the normal functioning of your nervous system, actually of your body in general. Mm-hmm. That, uh, But in particular to your nervous system, because your brain takes up about 20% of your metabolic budget. And so that's, it's a really expensive organ. And so it has to be really, really efficient. The other thing which is really interesting is that the most efficient way to run a system is not to have that system lie around dormant, doing nothing, and then be stimulated and then react. That's actually a highly inefficient system. The most efficient systems actually are predicting. They're kind of like running a model, kind of predicting what's going to happen, and then using um, input to correct those predictions. So this is very counterintuitive because there's nothing in our experience of ourselves or the world that would ever lead us to this hypothesis. However, when you look at the structure of the brain and how neurons are connected to each other, when you look at the physiology of how things work, when you look at the electrical signal processing properties, what you see really clearly is that the brain is organized to predict, not to react. So it feels to us, you know, when we're happy or sad or angry, like we're just reacting to things that are happening in the world. (laughs) But actually... Your brain is, is not reacting to events in the world. It's predicting. Your brain is constantly guessing what's going to happen next. And these guesses are the basis of your emotions. Your, the networks that are in your brain are, are networked in a way that based on whatever the situation is right now, the networks in your brain are predicting what's going to happen in a moment from now, what you're going to see and hear and taste and feel in a moment from now. And then when that moment arrives, it uses the sensory input to either confirm or correct those predictions. And that becomes your experience. And that's a lot easier to demonstrate um, with visual perception. And and you give several good examples in your book to, to demonstrate I could give you some examples here. For example, um, you know, we're talking and to us, it feels like we're listening to each other and just reacting to each other's words. But in fact, you know, you, your brain, based on years and years and years of experience with the English language, your brain is predicting every single word that comes out of my. (laughs) You did that to me. (laughs) You know, I was waiting for you to say mouth exactly <laughs> and imagine how surprised you would be if i said my ear or my nose or some other orifice of my body right it would just be really super surprising and that's because your brain is predicting mm-hmm. and your brain is predicting all the time here here's another example of um, prediction if you ever had a song that you know, goes through your head and you cannot get that song out of your head no matter what you do does that ever happen to you? Not very often, but just because I'm not very musical, but I know okay. the idea. Yeah. So for many people, this is something that happens. And what's happening is um, that 
you know, neurons in some part of your brain are changing the firing of the neurons in auditory cortex. And you, so you hear a song that isn't really there. Um, just in the same way that uh, your brain was, when your brain was preparing to hear me say the word mouth, it was changing the firing of its own auditory neurons to prepare you to hear that sound. So it was very surprising, you know, when you didn't. Another example is in tinnitus, for example, um, this is where people have a ringing in their ears that they can't get rid of. It's actually kind of like phantom limb uh, pain in the, in the ear. Again, Mm -hmm. you know, your brain is changing the firing of its own sensory neurons so that you hear something that isn't really there. Um, If I asked you, for example, right now to keep your eyes open Use your, your, maybe listeners will do this too. Keep your eyes open and in your mind's eye, try to conjure the image of a, a green Granny Smith apple. Absolutely. And if I asked you to imagine the crunch of the apple when you bite into it, can you sort of hear that? Mm-hmm. And if I asked you to imagine the taste of that, you know, that tart, really tart taste of a Granny Smith apple. Um, could you could you kind of imagine the taste of the apple? Mm-hmm. So in each of these cases, I'm asking you to imagine these things. And what your brain is doing in these instances is that some parts of the brain are causing the neurons in your visual cortex, in your auditory cortex, in the parts of the brain that are important for representing taste to change their firing in the absence of an apple. So basically, that's what your brain is doing when it's making a prediction. It's anticipating what the sensory changes are going to be in the next moment and preparing you to experience those. And then when the, in fact, if I, so if I brought out a Granny Smith apple and I showed it to you and you predicted it well, um, then nothing about that apple, no information about that apple would actually make it in very much further into your brain because the neurons are already firing in a way to capture it. Your brain only takes in information that it doesn't predict. And we have a very fancy name for this in in psychology. We call it learning. (laughs) That's what learning is. And this is a very metabolically uh, efficient way to run a brain. So what does this have to do with emotion? Well, it turns out that just in the same way that your brain is making predictions about what you will see and what you will hear and what you will taste and so on. It's also making predictions about what you will feel in your body. So your brain isn't just, its job isn't just to create the, your ability to see and hear and taste. It, it's also controlling the systems inside your body. You have a system for your heart and uh, your blood, your cardiovascular system. You have a system for your lungs and so that you can breathe. This is your respiratory system. You have a system for water, a system for salt, a system, your immune system, a system for your metabolism, um, many, many, many systems in your body. And your brain has to predictively control those systems. And it has to be done predictively. Your brain has to predict what your body needs and then move the resources around so that your body gets what it needs before those needs arise. Otherwise, you'll be sick or you'll hurt yourself. So for example, if your brain is going to stand you up, it has to increase your blood pressure before you stand up or you'll faint. There won't be enough 
oxygen that gets to your to your brain and you'll faint. So your brain is kind of managing your body predictively. And the way I like to think about it is that, you know, just like a large company has a financial office that keeps track of revenues and expenditures across all the different offices of the company, your brain is kind of like the financial office of your body. So, you know, while it's uh, creating your thoughts and feelings and perceptions and so on, it's also managing your body's budget for all of these systems, keeping everything in balance, you know, so just like, you know, you have to keep a balanced budget, a company has to keep a balanced budget, you have to keep a balanced budget for all of the accounts in your, you know, in your household, you have to make sure that if you make a withdrawal that you're spending, that you have enough revenue to cover that expense, right? And you need to replenish the revenues when you spend. And that's one of the things that your brain is doing, and it's doing it predictively. Um, And so the sensory consequences of all these changes in your body, that is, you know, your heart beats and your your lungs expanding and, and all of this, is a set of sensations that your brain is predicting, just like it's predicting what you're going to see and uh, hear and so on. And what's really interesting is that um, the way our brains are wired, we, we experience these sensations from our bodies as simple feelings of feeling pleasant or unpleasant, feeling worked up or, or feeling calm. And your brain is predicting these, that is partially constructing them at the same time that it's predicting uh, what you're going to see and hear and, and taste and so on. And together, these predictions are, as I explain in the book, are what we refer to as concepts. I want to take a moment to thank everyone who has helped support my work, both financially and by sharing it with others. While I'm at it, I will mention that How Emotions Are Made is available from audible.com, and I will include a link to Audible in the show notes. If you'd like to learn more about how you can support this show, please go to brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash donations to find the option that's best for you. Somebody is probably going to object that it certainly doesn't, no pun intended, feel like that's what's happening. I mean, it, it really feels like emotions. I mean, how do babies appear to have emotions from the very beginning? Well, they don't have emotions, though. So one of the things I talk about in the book is I cover the research showing pretty, pretty convincingly that newborn babies they have these feelings of um, pleasure and distress, of feeling worked up and feeling calm, what scientists call affect. But they, when a parent looks at an infant and experiences that infant as angry or as sad or as afraid or, or as happy and so on, the parent is using their own predictions, their own conceptual system in their own brain Um, to make sense of that baby's affect, to make Mm -hmm. sense of that baby's distress. or So the parent is guessing at the mental state of the baby. But babies are don't, they're not born with brains that are like miniature adult brains. They're born with brains that are equipped to wire themselves to the the physical and social surroundings uh, that they grow in. So they, they don't, they have, um, the capacity to feel pleasure and pain. They have the capacity to be worked up and 
um, agitated or calm, but they don't have the capacity to experience adult-like emotions until they have learned uh, emotion concepts. And this is something that I explain in my book. Right. In the book, you say that words are the secret ingredient. And they are because words allow us to learn how instances that look different, that sound different, and that feel different actually can be part of the same category. And words actually serve this purpose in infants as young as three months old. So there's this really fascinating work that I review from the developmental psychologists, for example, um, Sandy Waxman's work, who's at Northwestern University, and Susan Gelman's work at uh, University of Michigan, and Faye Shu's work at the University of California, Berkeley, all of whom and many others who do this really amazing work where they expose babies to objects that are different, you know, all different in terms of their size and shape and and the noises that they make. And babies learn very early to use words to group them together to create abstract categories. So an example would be you could take a very young infant and you can show the infant, let's say, a tubular looking structure, which is orange and um, has spikes on it. And you can say, look, sweetie, this is a wug. And you place the wug down in front of the infant and maybe the wug makes a beeping noise. And then you take a square, which is squishy and maybe it's purple. And you can say, look, sweetie, this is a wug. And you put the object down in front of the baby and it makes the same beeping noise. When you take a third object, like maybe it's a, it's a, it's a ball and it's red and um, it, uh, maybe it has bubbles on it or something, you know, um, and you say, look, sweetie, this is a wug. And you put it down in front of the infant. The infant expects it to make a, a beeping noise. Mm-hmm. So the baby in that instance is learning that all of these things, which look different and sound different and they feel different, the touch of them is different, are actually part of the same category. That's just like what an emotion category is, where faces are different and bodies are different and the feeling is different, but yet it's all the same emotion. How could that be? Well, a word is part of the answer here. Similarly, with babies, you can take two objects which look exactly the same, sound exactly the same, you know, have exactly uh, the same texture, but you give them different words. You name them, label them with different words, and the babies will assume that 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 these are very different objects that do very different things, even though their physical properties are identical. Um, This is also very similar to what emotions are like. You know, your heart rate can go up in happiness, in fear, in in anger, in sadness. Um, So how is it that the same physical changes can become different emotions? Well, again, it's with concepts which are anchored in words. And so in the book, I just go into a lot of detail explaining how this works, because it is so, you know, incredulous. And I have to be honest with you, if I wasn't a scientist who really you know, devoted uh, 25 years of my life to try and understand this. I'm not sure I would believe it, frankly. You know, it just seems like a preposterous kind of story. But I also think that, you know, first of all, it may sound preposterous to people, but there's just a ton of evidence to back it up. And also, I think the history of science here is really instructive. Because 
if you look at physics, if you look at chemistry, if you look at biology, all of them started with um, having explanations of the world based on our own experiences. You know, Aristotle believed that the elements of nature were fire, water, um, earth, and um, I'm forgetting one. And very slowly through experimentation um, and observation, scientists move away from the belief that our own experiences reveal to us how the world works. In fact, there's a name for using your own experience as a guide to how the world works. It's called naive realism. And so all science has moved away from naive realism as it develops as a science. And so, um, you know, the move from Newtonian physics to um, uh, relativity theory to quantum mechanics is a perfect example of moving towards a highly probabilistic constructivist view of the universe. And almost every science moves in the direction of construction as it develops. And so this is also true with neuroscience and our understanding of how a brain in a body uh, surrounded by, you know, other brains and bodies uh, learns to construct the experiences that we take as givens, you know, the emotions, thoughts, memories, perceptions, and so on. And you talk, though, in, in the book about affective realism. Can you talk about that since that's something that's a big, um, some ways, an obstacle for us? Sure. So so your brain is, is keeping your body systems in balance. and in fact, it's doing it predictively. And in fact, if you look at the structure of the brain, what you can see is that the predictions that the brain makes about the body happen slightly before the, they're wired in such a way that those predictions should occur slightly before the predictions that construct your vision, let's say, or your, um, what you hear or um, what you taste and so on. And so essentially, when your brain is making a prediction, it's basically asking the question, like, the last time my body was in this state, in this situation, what did I see? What did I hear? What did I taste? And so on. Another way of saying this is that when your brain is predictively regulating your body, you are going to sometimes have very strong affective feelings. The sensations from your body will become intense and you will experience this as intense um, delight or intense distress or intense jitteriness or intense tranquility. And this actually influences what literally what you see. So uh, in baseball, for example, Baseball is a, is a great example of affective realism in the sense that you've got a pitcher and you've got a batter. The batter's brain doesn't see the ball and then swing at it. The batter's brain is predicting where the ball is going to arrive and then prepares to swing at that prediction. If the batter waited until he saw the ball to swing, he wouldn't be able to mobilize him, uh, his brain and his body fast enough to actually make the swing happen. And the pitcher is trying to get the batter to uh, mispredict. So baseball is a big is a big example of um, affective realism. The batter's worked up, the pitcher's worked up. The batter is trying to predict where the ball is going to be, and the pitcher's trying to psych the batter out. So it's like this big game of deception, right? And it's really really fun. And if the batter is too worked up, 
he's going to mispredict where that ball is and he's going to strike out. There are times when affective realism is not so fun, though. For example, there's a, a study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy in 2011 showing that judges deny parole to more people right before lunch than they do after they've had breakfast. The reason why is that part of what the brain is doing when it's making predictions and so on in this way that we've talked about is it's, it's trying to come up with explanations for your affect. So it's trying to explain where do these sensations from your body uh, that you feel as intense pleasure or pain and so on, what, what is causing them in the world? Um, that is a, a psychological way of describing all of the dynamics of prediction and, and so on and concepts and so on, and which I explain in my book. And so what these judges are doing is they're engaging in affective realism. They believe that the dis discomfort that they feel right before lunch is um, evidence that the defendant is not trustworthy. And so they deny people parole more frequently. There are examples, lots of examples like this, uh, that some of which I discuss in my book. But another example is um, in police forces around the country and in the military, people who for example, police officers and, and soldiers who are in the middle of, um, a, let's say, peacekeeping mission can't wait until they consciously see a gun before they draw their own weapons. If they did, they'd be dead because there isn't enough time between seeing something consciously and making a physical movement to draw a gun. Instead, what's happening is that the brain is based on the situation that the, that the person is in, that person's brain is making a prediction of the likelihood of that a gun is present, that another person has a gun. And that's how they see guns when the person's unarmed. Yes, exactly. That's how they see, that's exactly how they see guns when the person is unarmed. It's an example of affective realism. Their brains predict that a gun is likely. They start to mobilize their physical response to draw their own gun they feel the, co the sensory consequences of that as a strong affective feeling, which gives them confidence that, that their perception, that which is just starting to be constructed, is correct. And they don't wait for the confirming evidence. Because if they did, you know, it could cost them their lives. It's kind of a sobering thought, isn't it? Well, I will say this, that the idea that you can be rational about in how you use a firearm is uh, just inconsistent with the wiring of the brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, I'm not, I'm not taking sides in any debate here. I certainly have opinions, but I'm just speaking here as a neuroscientist. Your brain is never is wired in a way so that affect will be part of every single decision that you make. And there's really not a hell of a lot you can do about it until after the fact. And so a lot of times we have these feelings of certainty about things that are being generated by our brain that aren't necessarily reliable. Exactly. Affect gives you a, cert a sense of certainty that your decisions are correct, even when they're not, right? Even when you're seeing something that isn't there. Are you familiar with um, Robert Burton's um, work at all? He has written a lot along the same lines as what you have written about how we need to be skeptical about our gut feelings because they're being generated, you know, 
basically in in by the brain outside of our awareness and just the fact that you feel so sure doesn't doesn't mean you're right we need it to be able to function in the world well it sounds like i should be reading his work right <laughs> well he should also read i i need to let him know about your book cuz i think he would appreciate it he his last book was called the skeptics guide to the brain what neuroscience mm-hmm. can and cannot tell us. And basically, he argues that we can't, there's a limit to how well we can understand our minds because, you know, our brain is a con man. <laughs> yeah, in fact, this is, a, it sounds a very, very consistent with, uh, with my view and with the view that I describe in the book. I mean, if you think about it, your brain is a master of deception because it's creating experiences and directing your actions with a magician's skill never revealing to you how it does so, and all the while giving you a false sense of confidence that its products, your experiences, reveal its inner workings. And, you know, we are, after all, a bunch of brains trying to figure out how brains work, right? So our own experience is not a really good guide to what's actually happening under the hood. You know, to us, it feels as if we are the victims of our emotions sometimes, you know, it feels as if they, um, they sort of erupt like, like little volcanoes or bombs that go off in our brains, causing us to do and feel things that we would rather not. Um, but in fact, that's actually not what's happening um, when you look at the neural dynamics of, of what's going on. Yeah, there's lots of ways that our, our intuitions lead us astray. Exactly. Well, um, I think we're out of time. I really enjoyed your book and I enjoyed getting to talk with you. I think that um, this book, How Emotions Are Made, is a very valuable uh, contribution to the conversation. How can my uh, listeners learn more about your work? Well, they can go to my website, which is lisafeldmanbarrett.com, all one word. And on the website, you can find information about the book, but you can also find articles that I've written. Uh, I write on a regular basis for the New York Times, and I've written magazine articles for Cosmopolitan and for other magazines. So there are a bunch of magazine articles that I've written. There are also articles there that other people have written about this work. And then I also have a set of videos that I've made that describe in a little bit more care and detail some of the more unfamiliar ideas, scientific ideas that that we've talked about today and that are in the book. There are also a series of podcasts that I've been on kind of like this one. And then I also have a blog where I, again, try to take on current issues and um, some of the more important scientific concepts and I could show how they're uh, related to everyday life. So the website has a lot of different information for people who uh, are interested. And I really appreciated the fact that your book not only has a, a very good bibliography and set of notes, but then your webs- the website for the book has even additional notes and references. 
That's right. So there are a set of web notes which go along with the end notes or the references of the book. So in case people are interested in finding out more about a specific topic that I only touched on in the book, I've constructed almost a thousand web notes for people which have additional explanations and and references if if they uh, feel so moved as to pursue those topics a little in a little bit more depth. Is there anything we left out that you really wanted to say today? Because I feel like we just scratched the surface as usual. Yeah, I mean, I feel the main message, I think, I guess there are two main messages, really. One would be, be curious about things that don't make sense to you. <laughs> like, don't be so quick to say, that's just a load of crap. Uh, I think that to really understand how the brain works and how it how it manages to create the thoughts and feelings and sights and sounds and so on that we just take for granted every day. We have to set aside our own experiences and also to some extent our disbelief and um, be curious and try to be open to the, the evidence because I think that's that's really important. And I also think that the second thing that I find myself saying these days is, you know, science is not a body of facts. It's, it's a process of trying to understand how the world works. And it's using a set of tools to test ideas and ask, is this idea in doubt or is this idea, is it strongly supported by the evidence? And a normal part of science is uh, that we use the tools that we have and we test our ideas and maybe we find a lot of evidence for those ideas. But then eventually, you know, maybe we get better tools, right? We get we get tools that are a little different or maybe a little more precise. And as a consequence, things that we used to believe to be true, we might find out are not really as true as we thought because now we have new discoveries, new evidence, new ways of looking at the world. This is not a problem with science. This is actually how science works. When Einstein came along and said, well, you know, time and space are not things, they're actually you know, the same uh, set of properties just looked at in different ways. Nobody said, oh, God, you know, physics doesn't work because Newton was wrong. Right. <laughs> and when and when Einstein, when quantum mechanics showed that Einstein was wrong and that things are much more constructed and probabilistic, nobody came along and said, oh, well, the world is over because, you know, we now know that Einstein uh, was wrong and all of science uh, is is now useless. No, in fact, quantum mechanics has given us some of the greatest inventions of our time, including the ability for us to talk to each other, um, having never met before and being thousands of miles apart. Yep. So my point is the fact that we used to believe something is true. Maybe we used to believe that there were mythical emotion circuits buried deep in the animalistic parts of our highly evolved brains. And now we see that that's not likely the case. And in fact, there's a, a much richer but perhaps much less intuitive explanation for how emotions are made, um, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with science. It, it actually means that science is progressing exactly the way that it should, um, which is that as we progress and we develop new tools and new methods and so on, we're able to ask better questions and, and improve our explanations of how the world works. So one last question what about students? Do you have advice for students? Yeah, my advice for students is to um, be curious. Don't be defensive when you're wrong. 
embrace failure and um, use it as a motivation to, for further discovery. There is a fantastic set of books by Stuart Firestein at Columbia University. One is called Ignorance, and the other is called Failure. I give these books to every member of my lab when they join my lab, because I think one of your greatest superpowers as a scientist is the ability to tolerate being wrong. And instead of being threatened by that, be curious. Because it's an offer. Every time you're wrong about something, it's an opportunity for discovery. It's a great opportunity to, for discovery. That's one thing I tell them. And the second thing I tell them is science is different than most other parts of life because you have to rely on what the data tell you, rely on observations. The authority of a set of scientific experiments, if they're conducted well, is more important than the authority of any person who gives you their opinion, no matter who they are, including Darwin and Einstein and all the great thinkers, right? You have well, possibly to, your major professor. <laughs> absolutely. In fact, I, my, I encourage my students to argue with me and trust me when I tell you they take me up on that opportunity as often <laughs> as they can. I absolutely think this is true. I, I often tell students, like when you're reading a, a scientific paper, don't read the introduction and don't read the discussion section. Just read the part of the introduction that tells you what the hypotheses are. Read the method section. Read the results and decide for yourself what you think that study found. And then you can go ahead and read the rest of the paper if you so choose. But the point here is that authority is not truth when it comes to science. Mm -hmm. You really have to think for yourself. And um, and. And be open to the opinions of other people, of course, because that's an important part of science as well. But, you know, just because Darwin said something doesn't make it true. You know, just because I say something doesn't make it true. The truth value of any idea rests with the data, with the range of experiments that have been conducted. I think that's the, I think the most important one of the most important guiding principles in a scientific career or a science, you know, a life guided by science. Well, I agree with that. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. It has been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. I want to thank Lisa Barrett for taking the time to talk with me. This is my favorite kind of interview because we not only got to talk about new ideas, but you also get a feel for how science is really done by human beings. Obviously, a one-hour interview could not do justice to the depth of the ideas in her book, How Emotions Are Made, The New Science of the Mind and Brain. This is a book I highly recommend to listeners of all backgrounds. And I will remind you that it is available on Audible. How Emotions Are Made has three main sections. The first is a discussion of why the classical theory of emotions needs to be abandoned. Second, the new theory of constructed emotions is discussed. And finally, the implications of this new theory, which includes a discussion of why the classical theory is so difficult to abandon. In the first part, Dr. Barrett examines the evidence against the classical theory of emotions. There are many variations of the classical approach, but they all share the assumption that emotions are universal and hardwired. 
Many also include the idea that our emotions are generated by the so-called animal parts of the brain. The problem is that although this idea is appealing, it's not supported by current evidence. Dr. Barrett reached this conclusion after searching for the universal fingerprints of emotion in three different areas. First, she looked at facial expressions. Then she looked at the physiological or body measurements and finally at the brain. And we talked about all of these in a lot of detail, I think, in the episode. But some of you may be wondering about Paul Ekman's work, which I actually discussed extensively back in episode 10. Ekman is famous for his research that involved showing pictures of faces to people from a wide variety of cultures. His work appeared to show that even primitive people could recognize certain universal emotions like happiness and surprise. This technique is called the basic emotion method, and it's been used widely in literally hundreds of studies. In her book, Dr. Barrett uncovers the methodological flaws in this method. First of all, the pictures are actually actors posing, not real people experiencing emotions. Secondly, the participants are asked to choose words that match the pictures. Here's the rub. If you take away the words, the results are completely different. People no longer describe the pictures consistently. In other words, priming the participants with Western emotion words produced an illusion of universality. There are lots of details and references about this in the book. One point she makes in the book that bears repeating is that a successful scientific theory must account for all the evidence. The reason a new theory was needed was the evidence against the classical theory of emotions has become overwhelming. Moving on to the theory of constructed emotions. The basic idea is straightforward. It says that our brain constructs our emotional experiences using the same circuits and functions that it uses to construct everything else we experience, including our perception of the world. Two things are at the heart of this process, prediction and concepts or categories. It is well established that perception is predictive, so much so that we can say that we see what we believe. We also hear, taste, and smell what we believe. Now we should add that we feel what we believe or expect. We learn to see objects in the world, and we also learn to feel emotions. We touched briefly on the role of words, but one thing we didn't talk about was that is really one thing we didn't talk about that's really important is that as humans, what we learn is highly social. We learn about emotions from our culture. Dr. Barrett discusses this in more detail in how emotions are made, including giving several examples of emotions that are unique to other cultures. We did talk a little bit about development and how children rapidly learn to see similarities and differences with the help of words. This principle applies to everything we learn, including emotions. This means that we did not inherit universal emotions from non-human ancestors, but we did inherit the ability to form concepts or categories. Even before they learn to talk, children assume that if two things have the same name, they must have something in common. 
So as they are exposed to the emotion words used in their culture, they begin to associate these words with both how they feel and how others around them act. I'll talk about the implications of this idea in a few minutes. One final topic that came up during our conversation was the concept of affective realism, which is a subset of naive realism. Naive realism is the belief that our senses provide an accurate and objective representation of the world. The more we learn about how our brains work, the more untenable that belief becomes. But that doesn't mean we should embrace idealism, which claims that the world exists only in our minds. No, it just means that things are not exactly as they seem. Instead, our brain gives us a version of the world, including our bodies, that hopefully allows us to survive and flourish. Affective realism is making decisions based on our gut feelings. We can't help being affective realists because, as Dr. Barrett's example of the baseball hitter demonstrates, we often have to make decisions before we have all the sensory data. But it's important that we be aware of our tendency toward affective realism. Shooting an unarmed person when you see a gun that's not there is a sobering example of believing is seeing. While there are situations where we have no choice but to act on our gut feelings, it is very important to realize that bad feelings do not always mean that something is wrong. Let's say you meet someone and you automatically dislike them. Affective realism is assuming that there must be a valid reason for this reaction. But I'm sure we've all had the experience where someone we initially disliked later became a close friend. This might seem like a benign example, but if you're in a position of power, like the judges who deny parole when they are hungry, engaging in affective realism can harm others. This is an example of how our theories about emotions can have real-world implications. But before I get into more detail, I want to discuss one other topic that Dr. Barrett and I did not touch on during our conversation. We talked a little bit about the social or learned aspect of emotions, but we didn't talk about where the feelings that we are naming actually begin. After all, emotions aren't just thoughts in our heads. They are associated with signals from our body. The signals from inside our body are called interoception. If you want to learn more about interoception, I recommend going back to my interview with Bud Craig, which is episode 121. The purpose of interoception is to help the body regulate its energy and to keep us alive. So returning to the example of the small baby, although emotions aren't hardwired, interoception and affect are. Affect consists of valence and arousal. Valence is, is the experience pleasant or unpleasant? And then arousal is, are you aroused or calm? So it's easy to see that babies and other animals experience affect. In fact, Dr. Barrett agrees with Dr. Jacques Pangsep that affect is probably a fundamental aspect of consciousness. So in the theory of constructed emotion, the brain combines interoception and affect to create an instance of emotion. Now, here's the thing that might be hard to accept. 
We intuitively feel that what we see and hear influences how we feel, but it's mostly the other way around. How you feel alters what you see and hear. You also feel what your brain believes. The key idea is that everything you feel is based on predictions from your knowledge and past experience. Believing is feeling. So summing things up, the failure to find fingerprints of emotion prompted Dr. Barrett to search for a theory that was a better fit to our current neuroscience. This led to the theory of constructed emotion, which basically says that instances of emotion are generated by the brain by mechanisms that are very similar to the way it generates sensory perception, which is via prediction. In the case of emotion, this prediction is based on affect, interoception, context, and past experience. So it's a whole brain phenomenon. As Dr. Barrett emphasized, This is a theory in the scientific sense of the word because it is supported by a great deal of evidence and it makes testable predictions. The last third of how emotions are made focuses on implications of this theory. In fact, the reason I invited Lisa Barrett on the show was that the theory of constructed emotions has the potential to change the way we see ourselves. First, We aren't passive receivers of experience. We actively participate in determining what we see, even though this happens outside of our awareness. Emotions are constructed in the same manner, which means we construct our emotional experiences and our perception of other people's emotions. She goes into a lot more detail in the book, but the point is that the theory of constructed emotions empowers us to find ways to change when needed. The principle of brain plasticity applies here also. The world around you wires your brain. Do you surround yourself with anger and hate? Or do you spend time with people that nurture positive emotions? Obviously, abandoning the classical view of emotions has great implications for our justice system, since it is based on the classical theory. Dr. Barrett's book has chapters about justice and about how the theory could impact our attitudes about health. But overall, abandoning the classical view is quite empowering because we no longer have to see ourselves as victims of an internal struggle between our emotions and reason. Of course, if you're a longtime listener, you know that the idea that emotion and reason can be separated is totally obsolete because... Emotion and cognition, or decision-making, are deeply entwined at all levels of the brain. The ideas expressed in how emotions are made fit easily with many of the ideas that we have discussed with other guests over the last two to three years, but I suspect that some of you will still feel resistance to giving up the classical view. After all, it has driven emotion research for many decades. Dr. Barrett actually addresses this in How Emotions Are Made. Ironically, the problem is that we seem hardwired to be realists, which means that affective realism feels right, and it means that we tend to judge theories by whether or not they feel right. This happens to even brilliant scientists. Think about Einstein rejecting quantum mechanics. The fact that neuroscience has reached a point where its theories no longer match our intuition means that the field is maturing along the lines of other scientific disciplines. Of course, the difference is that 
While few of us will argue with quantum mechanics or even take the time to learn it, we all have opinions about how our minds work. As Robert Burton reminded us back in episode 96, we are also limited by the fact that our brains not only create the world we experience, but they also tell us what to believe. It's generally hard to question one's own gut feeling or intuitions. But if you believe in following the evidence, then this is both a challenge and an opportunity. Finally, don't forget that episode transcripts and complete show notes are available at brainsciencepodcast.com. This episode's show notes include the links to all the episodes that I have mentioned. I would love to hear your feedback. You can send me email at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. But if you want to share your feedback more publicly, feel free to post your comments on the Brain Science Podcast fan page on Facebook. Or I also post on Twitter as Doc Artemis, D-O-C-A-R-T-E-M-I-S. Now, I'm going to close with a few brief announcements, starting with the fact that if you are a premium subscriber or Patreon supporter, you will be getting bonus content with this episode. There is an extra 10 minutes of conversation with Dr. Barrett in which we talk about Jacques Panksepp's work and the affective lives of animals. As I mentioned at the end of episode 134, Brain Science is returning to its usual monthly schedule, and I'm going to target the last Monday of the month, at least through November. I'll try to get December's episode out a little earlier since the last Monday is Christmas Day. But as I mentioned, I really need your ongoing financial support. There are three ways that you can help. Premium subscriptions, which are only $5 a month, give you unlimited access to the back catalog and transcripts, as well as premium content, which I hope to create more regularly in the future. For those of you who prefer paying on an annual basis, I should mention that the one-year and six-month options have returned. Patreon allows you to pick a monthly amount, and you get new episode transcripts, as well as premium content. Lastly, If you prefer making a single donation, you can use PayPal or even send checks to the address that's available at brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash donations. That page has links to all of these options. Of course, if you really can't afford $5 a month, you can support my work by sharing it with others in whatever way you want, word of mouth, social media, whatever you do, it helps. I'm still hoping to plan a trip to Australia in 2018, but that may depend on finding speaking opportunities. So if you're in Australia and have ideas or suggestions, email me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Lastly, I will mention again that I am hoping to attend the annual meeting of the Society for Neuroscience in Washington, D.C. in November 2017. If you are going to be in D.C. between November 11th through 15th, 2017, please email me if you want to get together. It'd be really cool if we could have a meetup where everyone also gets to meet each other. I will close with reminding you to visit brainsciencepodcast.com where you can sign up for our free newsletter and get show notes automatically. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to talking with you again very soon. 
Brain Science is copyright 2017 to Virginia Campbell, MD. You may copy this to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.